Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Friday. We are glad you are with us. What a day in America yesterday, a whole landscape certainly changed. We were talking about before the show, the scale of the changes over the course of the last year and a half, two Mm -hmm. years are dramatic. No matter what side you're on, you have to acknowledge this is a very different moment than it was just a couple of years ago. It absolutely is, all because of the high court. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's start this morning with five things to know for this Friday, June 30th. The Supreme Court guts affirmative action in higher education, prompting protests and questions over what comes next. And more crucial rulings are expected in just hours, centering on LGBTQ rights and student loans. Also this morning, big developments in two federal investigations of Donald Trump. In the January 6th case, a former official with his campaign is cooperating with prosecutors. And this comes as we learn the special counsel is not done investigating the former president's handling of classified documents. A man wanted on charges related to January 6th was arrested near former President Obama's DC home. Officials say the man had multiple guns, and materials to make explosives. And violent protests erupt across France overnight after the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old. Hundreds of arrests have been made across the country. The 4th of July travel surge officially here. The TSA says today will be the busiest yet for airports with more than 2.8 million passengers expected to take off for the holiday. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, as Phil just said this morning, we are waking up in a very different America, a post-affirmative action America after the Supreme Court declared race cannot be an express factor in college admissions in a historic ruling. This upends 50 years of jurisprudence and marks a huge and immediate shift for students. The class entering college this fall will be the last affirmative action class. It's just the latest sweeping change ushered in by a conservative supermajority court over the past year and a half. It was this time last year when that same court overturned Roe versus Wade. And now one year later, 14 states ban most abortions. There's also expanding gun rights. Last year, the court issued a major decision on the meaning of the Second Amendment, saying that the constitutional right to, quote, keep and bear arms allows owners to carry firearms in public. That, of course, led to a string of challenges to federal and state gun laws. Now, with the affirmative action decision, President Biden is once again vowing to push back. And this is what he's saying about that supermajority court. We should never allow the country to walk away from a dream upon which it was founded. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. President Biden, the Congressional Black Caucus and the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. And that was CNN's Arlette Sines who asked that question yeah. that the president answered. We want to get to CNN justice correspondent Jessica Schneider who joins us live from Washington. Uh, Jess, obviously there was some sense that this was coming. It's now here. Mm. What's your read on things? 
My read, Phil and Poppy, is that colleges and universities, they are likely scouring this opinion, really trying to figure out how they can restructure their admissions policies to comply, because the Supreme Court, in this opinion, does leave a little bit of gray area. For example, schools are essentially no longer permitted to have students check a box indicating race, but yet students are permitted to talk about how their race has impacted their lives in essays or otherwise. And amid all of this uncertainty, there's also been outcry along with praise for this decision. It's done more to unravel basic rights and basic decisions than any court in recent history. President Joe Biden slamming the Supreme Court after it upended decades of precedent on affirmative action. The 6-3 opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts says Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Roberts writing, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first woman of color on the Supreme Court, issued a fiery dissent, accusing the conservative majority of employing an unjustified exercise of power that will only serve to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. The two cases were brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, led by activist Edward Bloom, who has fought for nearly a decade to eradicate affirmative action. The case against Harvard was brought on behalf of Asian students, arguing they were disadvantaged because Harvard prioritized other minorities and ranked them lower for personality traits. We should be treated on the basis of our merits. We should be treated on the basis of how hard we work, our study, our SAT scores, our grades. Uh, a name-blind, race-blind process is... But critics say the ruling is a setback for racial and ethnic equality in education. I'm really most worried about, you know, the youth and like um, the students younger than us in high school and middle school and elementary school who might not get the same opportunity that I did. The divide reflected in sharply worded opinions from the court's two black justices. Justice Clarence Thomas writing, Justice Jackson's race-infused worldview falls flat at each step. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson firing back. Justice Thomas ignites too many more straw men to list or fully extinguish here. Several GOP presidential contenders applauding the decision, including Senator Tim Scott. I think this is a good day for America, honestly. This is the day where we understand that being judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, is what our Constitution wants. The Biden administration now working to provide guidance to colleges nationwide. We're going to produce by September and publish best practices around uh, college admission practices to ensure across the country that our students know that this administration is behind them and we support them making it to college. Now, there is a caveat in this case. The Supreme Court said that U.S. military service academies can actually continue to take race into consideration as a factor in admissions, essentially exempting those military schools from this ruling. That was spelled out in a footnote in the majority opinion. Poppy and Phil, you know, the chief justice said that in the footnote, but Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson called it out in a yeah. dissent, saying that the court was prioritizing what she called diversity in the bunker versus the boardroom. So a lot of back and forth in this case. Yeah, no question. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. 
Well, we're going to have a lot of conversations surrounding the Supreme Court throughout the course of the next couple of hours. That will include a sit-down with Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. He will join us. Why he's calling the affirmative action ruling a, quote, step backwards. Yeah, a lot ahead on that. Meantime, some big developments in both of special counsel Jack Smith's investigations of former President Donald Trump. We are now learning a former Trump campaign official is cooperating in Smith's probe of election of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. His name? who's cooperating is Mike Roman. He's a key witness in the fake elector scheme. You might remember him because he pleaded the fifth when the January 6th committee asked him about it. And what was your role, if any, in having alternate electors meet in states that Mr. Trump had lost, including Pennsylvania? The fifth. Did you discuss the alternate electors plan with President Trump, either before or after the electors met and cast votes on December 14th, 2020. The 5th. Well, and in the classified documents probe, we're told prosecutors have been questioning a top Trump campaign aide. Now, the former president allegedly showed this campaign aide a classified map of a military operation and told her not to get too close because he shouldn't be showing it to her. As you can see, a lot of developments on both those probes. Let's go straight to our senior crime and justice correspondent, Caitlin Polance, to break down how significant they are. Let's start with the 2020 election probe. Talk to us about Mike Roman. Well, Phil and Bobby, the special counsel's office, they're getting answers. That is the bottom line here. Uh, this person, Mike Roman, he was a campaign official in the 2020 election for Donald Trump. He was the, one of the people working on Election Day operations and clearly someone involved in organizing those fake electors in battleground states across the country. And what's so significant about this is that there are a lot of signs that the special counsel's office is drilling down on that fake elector's scheme and that they're in a very end stage of the investigation there. Uh, and what's indicative of what they're doing is that they're getting answers from people who refused earlier to provide answers like to the House investigators whenever they questioned Mike Roman and he took the fifth. But in this circumstance, he's answering. He's willing to answer because he's willing to cooperate because he has a layer of protection as far as we know. And so that allows him to become a witness who can talk not just about his communications with potentially Trump himself, but with others who were orchestrating that that scheme, people like Rudy Giuliani, other really senior people around Donald Trump after the 2020 election. Caitlin, on another investigation that's ongoing from the special counsel's office, we learned from sources that the special counsel's office is still investigating the former president's handling of documents even after the indictment. All right, you're my legal expert that I always go to. Why? There's already an indictment. Why would they still be investigating? There is already an indictment, but this is something that happens in investigations now. This is the investigation around Donald Trump and classified records, so it's an investigation like not many others. Uh, but we are learning that there's this grand jury in Miami that's still cutting subpoenas. There are still witnesses being approached. There may be avenues uh, and even potentially other people, maybe other charges that the prosecutors are still looking at, wanting to use that grand jury and get more information about. We don't know exactly what lane uh, they're pursuing right now, but this investigation is still active. It is not over, even though we already have these indictment, this indictment on the books of Donald Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nada, his political aide. And, Caitlin, before you go, Susie Wiles, a major player in Trump world right now, effectively running his campaign. 
She is indeed, but she is uh, one of the people in Donald Trump's close political circles who is also a witness. Now, this is in the classified documents investigation in the indictment already. We knew that Donald Trump had shown a map uh, of a military operation, a classified map to someone who was a representative of his political action committee. We have confirmed that that is indeed Susie Wiles, still working with him as a top advisor on his campaign. Uh, but she is a person that spoke to investigators multiple times, clearly is part of that indictment, potentially could be called to trial, maybe one of those people on that list he can't talk about this documents case with at all. Uh, and so pretty significant there. And also our sources tell our reporting team that the Trump inner circle was blindsided by the news that Susie Wiles is a witness on this. Uh, but there she is, along with many others in Donald Trump's political circle. I'm not sure there's a more important person in the Trump campaign apparatus than Susie Wiles. Uh, great reporting as always. Caitlin Pollins, thank you. Washington Metro Police have arrested a man with numerous firearms and materials to make an explosive. That arrest was just blocks from former President Obama's home. Officials say Taylor Taranto had an arrest warrant related to the January 6th Capitol attack. They say he also made threats on an Internet live stream. Gabe Cohen joins us live from Washington. Gabe, good morning. What do we know? Yeah, so Poppy, police have arrested and charged Taylor Taranto with at least being a fugitive from justice because of that open warrant that you mentioned related uh, to the January 6th attack at the Capitol. And it's really hard to say how close he was to doing damage here. But the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force is now investigating, and the details here are really disturbing. Police say Taranto was in a van in former President Obama's D.C. neighborhood with guns and material to make a Molotov cocktail after making claims on an internet live stream that he had a detonator. Uh, and Capitol Police quickly got involved yesterday, they said, because of not just concern for public safety, but also the potential for violence against members of Congress. And that arsenal uh, was enough that police requested an explosive disposal team to actually sweep Taranto's van at the scene, although law enforcement officials told CNN there is no indication of a direct threat to the Obamas. And a spokesperson for the family declined to comment on whether or not they were even home. But uh, Poppy Taranto is active on YouTube. You can see one of those videos uh, on your screen right now. That video posted uh, showing him inside the Capitol on January 6th. And we also know that yesterday morning before the arrest, a Truth Social account with the same username as Taranto's YouTube page reposted a post from former President Donald Trump that included the purported DC address of the Obamas. And the repost that you can see on your screen reads, quote, got them surrounded. Uh, now, of course, Poppy, there's the question of motive, which we don't know, something investigators are digging into. Gabe, thank you very much for the reporting. Keep us posted. All right, well, today is the busiest day to fly in what's expected to become a record-breaking holiday travel weekend. You're looking right now at live pictures from inside Dulles International Airport down in the Washington, D.C. area. Luggage piling up at the baggage claim there. TSA officials say they're expecting agents to screen nearly 3 million passengers. That's nearly half a million more than this day last year. And it comes after days of travelers getting stranded at airports across the country because of delays and cancellations. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live at LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And Omar, look, man, give me some good news. We have seen your reporting, all of the pictures, kind of the horror stories from airports over the course of the last couple of days. What should people expect today? 
Well, look, for anyone who travels on a holiday weekend, sometimes it's hard to know what to expect. But honestly, almost anything would be better than what people saw from last weekend into the week where we saw thousands of delays, tens of thousands or thousands of cancellations, tens of thousands of delays over a combination of severe weather, but also staffing shortages at U.S. airlines and at the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, especially with air traffic controllers. And the reason all that context is important is because That's what they're building from into what is expected to be a record weekend for travel over this 4th of July. And not just by air, but by road as well. AAA estimating that nearly or over 40 million people are expected to drive. That's up from last year. Over 4 million are expected to fly. That's up over 10% from last year and even up from a record travel year of 2019. And then over 3 million expected to travel by other means, which is even that up. 24% uh, from last year. But then when it comes to flying, TSA expected to screen nearly 3 million passengers. 2.8 million is the current record, and that was from a few weeks ago. So obviously, they've uh, they've got their tests laid out for them, and we'll see if any improvements come from last week. But again, any improvement from last week is a good improvement. Yeah, a little bit of a low bar. Let's hope we exceed it. Uh, That would be nice. So, Jimenez, thanks so much, bud. Appreciate it. The majority conservative court with a landmark decision on affirmative action will tell you what is at stake and how this really reshapes America, especially for students with our experts, plus this. And thousands of police deployed as clashes continue in France over the police killing of a teenager. A third night of riots leading to nearly 700 arrests. What the teen's mother is now saying about the fallout, we're gonna be live in France. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Fallout this morning from many people who disagree with the Supreme Court's decision yesterday, which got affirmative action in higher education. The 6-3 ruling will reshape college admissions immediately and likely upend diversity policies nationwide, potentially in business and beyond. President Biden not happy with the decision. President Biden, the Congressional Black Caucus and the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. With us now, civil rights lawyer Randolph McLaughlin, CNN politics commentator Errol Lewis, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining us at the table on a really consequential morning in America because, as Phil and I were saying at the top of the show, this is a different America. This follows overturning Roe versus Wade. This follows the Bruin decision on guns, which totally changed the reading of the Second Amendment. And now this. What does this mean? Honestly, I think step back uh, for a moment, and it's not. When we look at the impact of Donald Trump's presidency, this is what uh, the lasting legacy of the Trump presidency will be. It's not the wall. It's not the tax cuts. It's not any other thing. Both former President Trump and Senate leadership in the form of of, uh, Leader McConnell made uh, remaking the federal or reshaping the federal judiciary a huge priority. And... Abortion, for instance, and affirmative action have long been targets of uh, allies of the the former president. It's just just a fact. And what you're seeing now are are the impacts of that that will persist for generations. I think, you know, I think we in America get caught up on on the sort of day-to-day little political fights. And some of those will come and go. 
but courts, judges remain on courts for, you know, for their lifetimes. And this mark it down now. You're going to keep seeing decisions like this over the next 20 years because that's how uh, the judiciary works. Randolph, you know, what's been interesting to me, having followed some of the conservative legal movement for a number of years, um, this has certainly been a goal. This has certainly been something they push towards. And I think when you have the 6-3 majority that Elliot's talking about, the real legacy, I think, of the Trump administration, there was an expectation that this ruling was coming to some degree. Um, one of the individuals who was involved in the process of trying to get these courses in front of the case uh, in front of the court, spoke to our Kate Baldwin yesterday. I want you to listen to what he had to say. But what do you say to the millions of people who point to affirmative action, race-based admissions, as a reason for their success in life? I could point to race-based admissions as the reason why Asian Americans are being discriminated against right now. I mean, if you're an Asian American... You had to score 273 points higher on the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black person to Harvard. Is that fair? I understand that people's lives are improved by getting into an Ivy League university, but that opportunity should be made available to people of every race, not just one. What's your response to that? My response to that is very straightforward. Affirmative action programs should not discriminate or penalize any racial group, whether they're Asians or other racial groups. That's categorically true. Should not. And the courts basically recognize that. But here's what I'm here also to say. Affirmative action is not dead. It's mortally wounded. That this court didn't go as far as they were planning to go, certainly in Justice Thomas's mind. Justice Thomas wanted to overrule and declare affirmative action completely illegal and unconstitutional. This court was unwilling to go that far. There is not yet a majority to say affirmative action is unconstitutional. There's a small group, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and maybe a couple of others who would agree with that. But there's still a window open in this case. There's still an opportunity. Diversity is still a compelling state interest. All the judges, except for Thomas, who has his own issues with this, all the judges agreed that that is still a compelling state interest. The only thing that was decided here categorically was that these two programs weren't constitutionally sound. That's all. So that, I mean, that's indicative of the Roberts court moving incrementally instead of in a sweeping way. But but Laura Coates, let me bring you into this conversation as well, because the way that Justice Sotomayor sees that in this scathing dissent, in her words, is lipstick on a pig. Well, it's really a realization that she has had and talked about over the course of her career, which is interesting just juxtaposition between herself, of course, and Justice Thomas, one seeing it as racial sensitivity, one seeing it as racial paternalism. But this is all supposed to be rooted not in one's philosophical ideology, but instead based on the Constitution and also the context surrounding it. Remember, the 14th Amendment is a post-Civil War amendment intended to course correct those who have been disadvantaged, those who have been discriminated against, black people in America that has also been, of course, expanded to include other racial groups as time has continued. But you saw in the dissent, as you saw in the concurring opinion of Justice Thomas, the conversation really about 
what the intention of that was supposed to be in the long term. Now, of course, Thomas spent about 10 plus pages going after not only the dissent generally, but also Ketanji Brown Jackson, Mm -hmm. the youngest of the Supreme Court justices, of course, in her career. But he focused instead on the idea of a racialized ideology driving her particular uh, perspective, as opposed to looking at what the Constitution, what the actual intent was and beyond it. But what we saw here really, and I heard your prior guest talking about what the really conundrum can be and how this will work in in practice, that's really the crux of, I think, the next frontier of arguments here. How do you, on the one hand, say that you cannot consider race as a factor, and on the other hand, have a sentence that says you can have a student or an applicant discuss such things in a way that talks about their identity, their lived experience, their journey. What is an admissions officer to truly do to not offend the Constitution, according to the holding, and not also avoid future litigation? I think this is going to be a really difficult task. Yeah, really difficult task with, I think, a lot of litigation to come without any question. Errol, I want to ask you, mm-hmm. Laura noted the dissent from Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, it was uh, quite visceral to some degree uh, and obviously very personal for her. And at one point she says, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, by deeming race irrelevant in law, does not make it so in life. Yeah, that's really what the dissent was about. Um, Justice Sotomayor made the same point. And for all of us who are sort of affirmative action babies, meaning we came in uh, under this regime and got a shot at elite learning and a chance to really succeed in society because of it, Katanji Brown-Jackson is certainly one of those people. And if you look at the way things were, I mean, she's a realist, basically, when it comes to this. At Harvard, Harvard started in the 1600s. It's much older than the United States. For 300-plus years, they typically allowed into the college 12 or fewer black students prior to 1970, less than 1%. And all of that changed when affirmative action was created. And the minute it happens, it gives rise to this extraordinary group of people who go on to run major corporations. You know, they're running Merrill Lynch, and they're running, uh, you know, uh, American Express, uh, Merck. Merck. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then right behind that, you, you get the, the cohort in the 1990s with a guy named Barack Obama, yeah. you know, and Ketanji Brown Jackson. And, and, and so does Sonia Sotomayor talks about this really as well, saying, like, this is what it was intended to do. This is why it's not just something that's irrelevant, as right. Justice Thomas seemed to insist that it might be. To your point, it also, we have to remember there was a day when Justice Clarence Thomas was an advocate for affirmative action. He has talked openly about how it uh, was one of the things that propelled him into Yale Law School. Then he became very critical of what it meant for him and others after. What I'd like to do is play two pieces of sound. The first is Sonia Sotomayor in 1994, talking about being, in her words, an affirmative action baby. The next is Justice Clarence Thomas speaking to 60 Minutes in 2007 about viewing it in a a diametrically opposed way. Here they are. I am a product of affirmative action. I am the perfect affirmative action baby. My test scores were not comparable to that of my colleagues at Princeton or Yale. But (laughs) if we had gone through the traditional numbers route of those institutions, it would have been highly questionable whether I would have been accepted honestly, honestly believed that Yale thought 
that having a kid who came from working people in the South, who had grown up through segregation, that this kid who'd prospered, who'd done well, every single place he'd ever been, whether in all white school, all black schools, he's always done well, he will do well here. And it will benefit both him and Yale. That's what I thought. Now that's what you do when you're 21, 22 years of age. You could make a mistake. Well, that isn't what it was converted to. What was it converted to? It was converted to, well, you're here because you're black. That degree meant one thing for whites and another thing for blacks. It was discounted. It was discounted. That's right. You, you write in the book that uh, your Yale degree was worth 15 cents. <laughs> well, you know, I, <laughs> Steve, I have still uh, a 15 cent sticker on the frame that my law degree's in. It's tainted, so I just leave it in the basement. Because he had a hard time getting a job after even with that degree. Unfortunately, uh, Justice Thomas has not left his personal feelings and animosity towards Yale, towards affirmative action, in the basement. He's, left, he's put it right in front and center. He's made his personal issues, the stigmatic harm that he feels, he's made that a constitutional question. And I'm sorry, Justice Thomas obviously has an issue with affirmative action, but we should not allow one judge to determine what our national constitutional policies are. Six. Well, yes, but he's the one who wants to overturn Grutter. The others don't yet. And you're right, incremental change is Robert's hallmark. So just like Dobbs eventually overturned Roe, we may eventually see Grutter and Bakke also overturned. So the question is, what are we going to do about it today and now going forward? You know, it's, it's interesting watching those two clips next to each other because I think it affirms this idea that there's a lot of different ways to be a black person or a person of color, whatever it might be, in America. And they both have completely plausible reasoning for what they took away from affirmative action. I'm not going to quibble with either of them. The the, thing, the point with Justice Thomas, though, is that there is a demonstrable impact on admissions when you take affirmative action away. And so by way of example, if you restrict or limit or, or sort of reduce the number of black people who come to a university, you're, you're significantly limiting the number of women as well, because about two thirds of black people in college today are young women. And so you're going to have to contend with some of these real impacts on changing the face, pun intended, of a, of a future student body. And I just think even setting aside the personal views of whether affirmative action is stigmatizing or harmful or whatever it might be, it's going to have an impact on what universities look like starting next year or the year after. Laura? You know, I, it's interesting because on the one hand, people might forget that Justice Thomas was once the chair of the Equal Opportunity Commission, which is interesting right. to think about Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, thinking about the history and really the evolution that he seems to have had but I want to be clear on one thing. Everyone who's talking about affirmative action, I think the conversation has happened across the nation. Here's what it is and here's what it's not. Affirmative action is not one door for black and brown applicants, and then you decide whether they're qualified. It often is used in the admissions process that otherwise qualified applicants 
who have met the criteria, albeit subjectively, as a violinist, a cellist, a veteran, a legacy, somebody who is an athlete, a whole host of circumstances. And then there is oftentimes the contemplation of what might distinguish one student from another to contribute to the overall community. That's normally how it's viewed and used in operations and admissions. I'm hearing a lot of conversation throughout the last 24 hours about, aha, finally you'll have students with merit who actually attend. Well, that was always the case. They also just happen to have different colored skin. Number two, we're talking about the Brown versus Board of Education. Think back to that infamous Dolls experiment that spoke to the sociological and psychological impact of racism and segregation. Part of what motivated that Supreme Court was that there was a test that had black children handed dolls that were black, handed dolls that were white, and they asked them what did they think about the characteristics of those dolls. Black children looked at these black dolls and overwhelmingly thought they were bad, they were wrong, they were evil, they were ignorant, they were dumb. And that was what motivated the courts to say, hold on, racism has a psychological impact as well on white students as well who were viewing the same criteria. So conversations from Justice Thomas and beyond about the impact of race in America is still very much at issue today, given his own holding about the impact of affirmative action he believes on himself. Everyone stay with us. There's a lot more to talk about here, really about what is ahead. Also, this news from around the world, officials in France struggling to contain unrest that has spread across the country. Hundreds of protesters are in custody this morning. The violence sparking a second crisis meeting from President Macron. Plus, CNN has exclusively learned that the Russian general accused of knowing about the rebellion over this past weekend was a secret VIP member of the Wagner Group. We're live in Moscow with the very latest. Stay with us. New this morning, a third night of violent nationwide protests across France after police shot and killed a 17-year-old during a traffic stop. We're watching video of angry demonstrators shooting off fireworks at police and lighting fires to schools, town halls, and police stations. 40,000 officers were deployed to quell the protests. More than 600 people have been arrested. And the officer who shot the teen has been charged with voluntary homicide. CNN's Nick Robertson is live for us outside Paris. And Nick, what are you seeing? What are we hearing at this point from the teen's mother? Yeah, she is saying, as she led what was initially yesterday a peaceful protest until it turned violent. She said, "Look, I, I don't hold, I don't hold all the police responsible. I don't uh, blame all of the police. I just blame the one who shot my son, the person I love." So she's been very clear on that, which kind of matches in a little way what the government is saying that the response so far has been unjustified uh, in its scale. That what the protesters are doing is damaging uh, the infrastructure that regular people in France use. I mean, take a look behind me, the bus station here. 12 buses here torched last night, 26 buses in this local neighborhood torched a tram as well. Total cost of that ballpark, $11.5 million. And that's only one place in France. You've got cities in the north, like Lille, like Roubaix. You've got Nantes in the west. You've got Bordeaux in the southwest. You've got, uh, you've got uh, in, the, in the Mediterranean there. You've got cities there in the center of France. Lyon's been uh, affected by the protests as well. It's happening all over the country. I asked the transport minister who was here this morning, what do you do to put out the flames of this protest? 
It's in the interest of those who are expressing their anger today to protect our public service. And then we live in a society of law. The justice system needs to be able to carry out its work. No one is above the law, but everyone has the rights protected by the law. We also need to leave the justice system in tranquility. It's what we owe to the young man who was killed. Calm, tranquility and justice carried out in good conditions. Scoot slightly. Yeah, there's uh, bringing in recovery equipment right now for the buses we're moving. But this is a big situation. The concern is that the violence is going to get worse and it's going to spread. The President, Macron, is about to hold an emergency crisis meeting with his cabinet. Uh, there, a protest planned for tonight. Nahel's funeral is Saturday. Uh, this is not over yet. No question, Nick Robertson. Thanks so much. Now to Russia, a document shared exclusively with CNN suggests that top general Sergei Svakin was also a secret VIP member of the Wagner mercenary group. Some Russian newspapers and blogs report that he was arrested over last weekend's brief rebellion. But a government official in Russia is denying that, saying, quote, he's not in La Forteva or any other pretrial detention facility. I don't even want to comment on the nonsense about, quote, an underground detention facility. Our Matthew Chance joins us live from Moscow. This general, though, hasn't been seen for days. We should note neither has Wagner's chief, Evgeny Prigozhin. What do we know? Yeah, well, I mean, Prigozhin certainly hasn't been seen for days, uh, and nor is this general, General Surovikin. Um, and the Kremlin are refusing to comment on his whereabouts. You heard that local official saying he's not in one of these pretrial detention centres, but he may, he may well be you know, somewhere else, perhaps being, being held on a military base. We, we just don't know um, where he is. But these documents that were given to, to CNN exclusively um, do show that General Surovikin, who was the deputy commander, remember, of Russian forces in Ukraine, uh, was on uh, a list of VIP members of the Wagner mercenary group. There were 30 other people there, high-level military and intelligence officials, according to the Dossier Centre, which is a Russian investigative group uh, that uh, has obtained uh, these, these documents. It's not clear what VIP membership actually entails, whether it means they're on the payroll or whether there's any other kind of financial benefits. There's no evidence of that that has been disclosed. But it does imply an overly close relationship between the senior figures in the Russian military and the Wagner mercenary group that staged that attempted uprising here in Russia at the weekend. And of course, remember uh, that Wagner was able to move without opposition from the military into at least one major Russian city. And so this raises the question of potential divided loyalties. Poppy and Phil, back to you. Matthew Chan to Moscow. Thank you. Well, top Trump campaign aide now revealed as a key figure in his classified documents case. Who is she and what Trump allegedly showed her while discussing military operations? That's coming up next. New this morning, multiple sources are now telling CNN that the Florida grand jury that indicted former President Donald Trump in the classified documents case is actually not finished investigating. It's unclear what exactly prosecutors are looking for, but we do know they're continuing to question witnesses. One of the people they're talking to? Top Trump campaign aide Susie Wiles. A source tells CNN Trump allegedly showed her a classified map of a military site at his Bedminster Golf Club in 2021. 
Meantime, in yet another investigation dogging the former president, a former Trump campaign 2020 campaign official Mike Roman is, we've learned, cooperating with the special counsel in the probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Back with us, Laura, Laura Coates, Errol Lewis and Elliot Williams. Errol, let me start with you about I think Mike Roman's not a um, household name for folks, but did speak to the January 6th committee, but took the fifth a lot of times. The fact that he's cooperating because those, those are really important questions that he wouldn't answer to the committee that cooperation would suggest he is now answering to Jack Smith. That's exactly right. And if you are granted immunity when you go into the grand jury, you can speak quite freely. And so uh, the Trump team has got to be very worried about what he might or might not be saying. This is something Donald Trump throughout has always tried to rely on. You know, you're my guy. You're on my team. You know, attorney client privilege. We're all in this together. It's not necessarily the case. I mean, attorneys are, you know, they are officers of the court. But he's key for a specific reason in terms of Mike Roman, in terms of sort of suggesting fake electors. Well, that's right. The, 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 the fake elector scheme, I, I think, got a, a breath of new life when it was struck down just the other day. So even as a theory, I think prosecutors may have a different approach to this. They may have some clarity, enough clarity, that they may decide to go further with the investigation and even start considering charges in connection with it. Laura, can I ask, uh, you know, Susie Wiles may not be a household name. I think to some degree that's uh, by design mm-hmm. on her part. She's a very powerful figure within yeah. the Trump campaign orbit, within Florida politics for years, including before they had a falling out, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. The idea that she's now involved in this or has been involved in this, what does that tell you about this? Well, this is a very wide net that's been cast. And remember, every time we're hearing a public statement from the president in reaction to this indictment, a question is raised. Were there other people in a room where anything is alleged that could actually give and shed some light on an issue? We are learning a lot lot about the people who are consequential, who might have been in front of the cameras. But now it's the behind the scenes aspects of all these investigations, the diligence of investigation that has to actually uncover these things. It's going to be very telling going forward, Phil, to figure out to what extent somebody is actually a cooperator in the sense that they otherwise refuse to give testimony and be heard unless they got an immunity deal, or they were voluntarily cooperating, hoping to have some advantage and lenience in terms of not being charged, or they are somebody who has no intention of being aligned with Donald Trump any longer, or his co-defendant Will Nada, or in the fake elector schemes conversation, and simply is hoping to be a proactive citizen of America. We'll see what remains actually to be the case. I'm, I'm most interested in all of these developments this morning on this front by why Jack Smith is continuing the probe in the Mar-a-Lago. Right. Um, case even after this 37 count indictment, you say there are two possible explanations. I, I, yeah, no, it's two, and then let's maybe even say three. Okay. Um, they are either considering more charges against former President Trump, okay. more charges against additional people, so bringing more people in and charging them with crimes, or not adding to the charges in any way, but just bolstering what they already have. You know, whenever like what you they'll argue in court, yeah, whatever they'll argue in court, or additional documents that might support the charges they have, or more acts of obstruction, uh, or, you know, more conduct that they could use to charge obstruction of justice. So um, it's really just making their case stronger in any way. But um, but it's hard to tell which of those three options it might be. What are we even here for? We need a single answer, what? definitively. Uh, what? what is <laughs> single, no, I'll tell you, the single answer is maybe. Maybe. I love that. That's, that's, that's it. That, a is a, that is a caution. Um, Errol, the idea, I'm fixated on the, the Susie Wiles 
involvement to some degree or, or whatever her role is, because I, I just think, and it's hard for people maybe to understand this, she's incredibly important inside the orbit. And it doesn't mean one thing. We don't know exactly what this means at all. Um, I think CNN also reported that the Trump campaign orbit was pretty surprised by this development. Can you, <clears throat> the extent that that matters inside the campaign and political apparatus? Well, look, it, it matters tremendously. Not, I mean, look, politically, uh, as pundits, you look at it and say, oh, that's one of the insiders. Maybe she's right. turning on him. Put that aside. Legally speaking, uh, there could be a superseding indictment. There could be a real problem for him if, if what she is doing is informing the special prosecutor about additional instances in which confidential materials were either leaked or displayed or otherwise put forward uh, in a different location than what we had heard about. If this isn't just a Mar-a-Lago uh, dinner or this isn't just an instance at Bedminster, if there are other documents, things like a map that we hadn't really heard much about before, he could be in for a world of trouble, additional additional problems. I went to Errol because he's a political insider, and I thought we could vibe on the political insider And thing. then he said then superseding he totally, indictment. He totally cast it aside and then started talking. Lawyers. They legal. gave me a lot of lawyers. Well, when you go to Harvard, what do you expect <laughs> from a Harvard law school It was a mistake. Grad. It was short-sighted on my part, and I, I have been... Uh, it's because you told Elliot. It's because you were mean to Elliot. I wasn't mean to Elliot. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I got a tough skin. Oh, 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 we are Yankees fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're good. <laughs> All right, okay. coming up for us, this. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale Brown. It's exactly right. A very emotional reaction from that is Scott Peterson, the former Parkland, Florida resource officer. The jury acquitting him of all charges for failing to act during the deadly school shooting. Well, jury in Florida finding former Parkland Resource Officer Scott Peterson not guilty on all charges. Now, you'll remember Peterson broke down in tears as the sentence was read on Thursday. Prosecutors had accused him of ignoring his training and waiting outside the high school as a gunman inside killed 17 people, including 14 students back in 2018. CNN's Carlos Suarez reports. The defendant is not guilty. An emotional Scott Peterson breaking down in a Florida courtroom after a jury finds the former school resource officer not guilty on 11 charges ranging from felony child neglect to perjury. Peterson was the first law enforcement officer on the scene the day 17 people, including 14 students, were gunned down at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in what remains the deadliest U.S. high school shooting ever. We've got our life back after four and a half years. It's been an emotional roller coaster for so long. State prosecutors accused Peterson of ignoring his training and doing nothing, failing to confront the gunman to save lives. What was expected was for Scott Peterson to value the lives of those children as much as he clearly valued his own. Prosecutor Kristen Gomes pointed out Peterson stayed in a protected position for more than 45 minutes while the shooter was free to move and continue his rampage. The defense argued gunfire echoed off buildings and Peterson couldn't tell where the gunshots were coming from. This is not just a victory for Scott. It's a victory for every law enforcement officer in this country who does the best they can every single day. For some of the victims' families, they don't see this as a victory. I feel that my faith in the U.S. justice system is shaken. Tony Montalto's daughter, Gina, was killed that day. We don't understand how this jury looked at the evidence that was presented 
and found him not guilty. Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the mass shooting, says this was not a day to celebrate. Joaquin cannot say today, oh, I'm going back to my life. He will never say that. You guys signed for that job. And Fred Guttenberg, the father of victim Jamie, took his frustration of the verdict to Twitter. Quote, while Peterson and his attorney, Mark Iglarsh, celebrate him getting his life back, they must always remember that my daughter was murdered. And this morning, Scott Peterson's legal troubles may not be over. Some of the Parkland families plan on going after him in civil court. Now, after the verdict, uh, Peterson said he was willing to meet with some of the families, but none of the family members that we talked to, none of the family members that were in court said they were interested in meeting Scott Peterson. Phil and Poppy. All right, Carlos Suarez, thanks for reporting. And coming up ahead, we'll speak with Scott Peterson about his emotional reaction and his message to Parkland family members about that verdict. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. is seismic. Now come the aftershocks. The Supreme Court has gutted affirmative action. It prevents our higher education institutions from using a tool that helps promote diversity on campus. This is not a normal Today's decision marks a landmark win for the rights of Asian Americans in this country. Being able to consider my race and my story is how I believe Harvard was able to see me. The Florida grand jury that indicted Donald Trump in the classified documents case is actually still investigating. One of Donald Trump's closest campaign advisors was shown a classified map by the former president. Susie Wiles. We know she was interviewed multiple times by the special counsel. A man was arrested in former President Barack Obama's Washington neighborhood with multiple firearms and materials to make a Molotov cocktail. The Secret Service in the area around the Obama's residence observed him acting suspiciously. Taylor Toronto is somebody who was on the radar, first from the January 6th case. The defendant is not guilty. Peterson was charged with 11 counts for his alleged inaction to stop the shooter in Parkland, Florida in 2018. We've got our life back. It's been an emotional roller coaster for so long. But there's no doubt that he's morally responsible. He stood there for 40 minutes doing nothing. If he diverted him for 10 seconds, my son would have been able to close the door. Just a mess. We literally got on the flight. We taxied for like six hours and they told us we couldn't take off. Today is expected to be the busiest travel day for the 4th of July holiday weekend. Fingers crossed that everything's on time. Good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour, 7 a.m. here on the East Coast. We're glad you're with us. We have a lot to get to, as you saw, but really focusing this morning on just a consequential decision out of the high court that has really reshaped America for so many students. And I think how that decision paints a broader picture mm-hmm. of what's happened with a 6-3 to three conservative right. majority. A great point was made Super last majority. hour, supermajority, about if you want to know the legacy of the Trump administration, it's the court. this is it. That's this right. is it. And you're seeing the rulings reflect that. And I want to talk about those rulings because you think first it was abortion rights last year. It was also gun laws to some degree. And now the Supreme Court has gutted affirmative action in college admissions, declaring race cannot be an express factor in picking students. It's the latest sweeping change ushered in by a conservative supermajority, as popular as noting, over the past year as reshaping America as we know it, very in line with what conservative, conservative legal scholars have been pushing for 
for years. The historic landmark ruling could have lasting effects on the diversity of campuses across the nation. The class entering college this fall will be the last affirmative action class. It was this time last year that the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Now, one year later, most abortions are banned in 14 states. Several of those states don't allow any exceptions for rape or incest. Also last June, the Supreme Court with a landmark ruling on the Second Amendment and guns, which was a huge victory for gun rights advocates. It led to judges across the country, federal judges, state judges, tossing out and blocking some gun safety laws. Joining us now to talk about all of this is former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama, Jay Johnson. He also chairs the New York State Bar Association Task Force aimed at maintaining diversity. He is also the attorney and attorney and partner at the Paul Weiss Law Firm. It's great to have you. Good morning. Thank you very much. So for you, this is about students. This is about what happens with their careers, becoming future lawyers. But it's also personal for you. Can you share your personal experience and then reaction to what the court has done here? In addition to everything you mentioned, I'm also a trustee of Columbia University. And just a month ago, in anticipation of this decision, I was recalling to Lee Bollinger, the outgoing president of Columbia, the summer of 1978, 45 years ago. I was in the midst of applying to law school, anxiously awaiting the Supreme Court's decision in Bakke. The Bakke decision in 1978 permitted higher education, universities, colleges to consider diversity in enrolling students. I, had, I said to Lee then, were it not for the Bakke decision, uh, I was admitted to Columbia Law School. I probably would not be sitting in that room as a trustee of Columbia 45 years later. Uh, Poppy, in this society, uh, in America, it is still in 2023, in my judgment, Uh, the impulse of many to self-segregate. Where we live, how we socialize, even where we work. Diversity in higher education has been, for many Americans, the the first opportunity they have to uh, live, uh, to learn in a diverse society, geographically diverse, culturally diverse, and and racially diverse. Uh, That's been the virtue of higher ed one of the many virtues of higher ed over the last generation or two, whether it's Harvard, whether it's Columbia, or whether it's Montclair State. And so we now have to figure out where do we go from here uh, in light of this decision. One very crucial uh, paragraph, sentence from that majority opinion of Chief Chief Justice Roberts is this. As we all agree, and nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So the court is leaving uh, the door open a crack to allow admissions officers to consider an applicant's personal situation, including an applicant's personal situation grappling with the issue of race. So uh, I'm... I'm Thrilled that you actually pulled that out because that was literally what I wanted to pull out and ask you about. Because I think, look, fascinating reading in 240 plus pages of the opinion and concurrences, the sense you learn a ton about the personal views, uh, the legal opinions. I think they're visceral. They're unvarnished to some degree, um, given where the nine justices are on this issue. But on that point, I don't think and you may disagree. Obviously, you're involved in higher education. um, 
the affirmative action, the process that was in place, university by university, wasn't necessarily perfect. There were certainly holes in it. There were certainly problems with it. You saw Asian Americans in particular who kind of led on, on bringing this case, uh, raising very specific and pointed concerns. Why, given what you just read, is it not possible for universities to implement a system <clears throat> that addresses this just without uh, perhaps the, the uh, affirmative action as it was known being what kind of drives it? Well, that's going to be the, the, the issue and the challenge going forward. Um, many colleges and universities already consider uh, personal factors such as the ones I read in reviewing uh, an applicant's um, uh, application to get into to school. Uh, <clears throat> now this Supreme Court has taken away the ability to achieve diversity for the sake of achieving diversity and looking at an overall pool of, of what an incoming class looks like. Uh, I'm confident that a lot of thinking is going to go into this in the days ahead. And I hope that it will be the case that universities find a way to achieve a diverse class, whether it's race, culture, geography, economic circumstances, by allowing uh, us to all consider an applicant's personal challenges in life, uh, whether it's because of where you grew up, how you grew up, where you went to school for high school, uh, and how you've grappled with being the victim of discrimination in this, in this country. From where I sit in the legal profession, we want to be able to look to law schools uh, with diverse student bodies, because we've all seen the advantage of diversity in the legal profession. We've seen the advantage of diversity uh, in the judiciary. Uh, ironically, this Supreme Court is the most diverse Supreme Court ever. Uh, a minority of the nine are white men which, for the first time in history. And so uh, those of us in the legal profession are going to continue to look to law schools, colleges, and universities to produce diverse classes because it benefits us in the profession and in the business world. Uh, we noted your work in the Obama administration, and I was struck by the former president's statement yesterday in which he said, now it is up to all of us to give young people the opportunities they deserve and help students everywhere benefit from new perspectives. What does that look like, for example, as a partner at a big, powerful law firm like you are, uh, as a trustee of Columbia University in making these decisions? The Biden administration says they're going to make changes, do everything they can, but the court really restricts what they can effectively do that would pass muster and with a court challenge. Uh, yes, it has. And what President Obama is saying is what many of us believe, that uh, achieving a diverse situation, whether it's in a law school class, whether it's in the situation room, or whether it's on the Supreme Court, works to the benefit of uh, and contributes to a healthy educational and decision-making environment. Uh, when you have people who come from uh, South Carolina, New York City, uh, federal defenders, law school professors uh, in the room together, uh, out of that environment comes healthy decision-making. Um, when you have nine people or 12 people or 20 people all from the same background, all from the same social situation, all from the same geography, that is the environment for unhealthy decision-making. And that virtue must flow through the entirety of life, whether it's 
colleges, whether it's law schools, whether it's law firms, whether it's the executive branch of the U.S. government, whether it's the White House, the West Wing, uh, those of us of my generation certainly know the virtue of, of diversity. And we have to continue on that path. I think it's vital to who we are as, as a nation, who we are as a people, that we continue to try to struggle along this path. Real quick before I let you go, President Biden calling the court not normal. I think he, he went on to explain what he meant by that in terms of overturning precedent and their willingness to move as fast as they have on some issues. President, former President uh, Obama was not uh, subtle, and I think his uh, view of the Supreme Court as well. Do you feel like the Supreme Court is not normal, or are they just following what conservatives have kind of laid out as what they wanted to do for years now? Uh, the latter. Um, the, like the issue of abortion, uh, this decision has been in the making now for years uh, with an increasingly conservative Supreme Court. Uh, I think we all pretty much saw this coming. Uh, many predicted that Chief Judge Justice Roberts would be the one to write this opinion. Um, and we've anticipated this now for, for some time. And it's up to those of us who care about this issue to chart the road ahead. Mm-hmm. All right. Jay Johnson, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All right. Well, President Biden, as I noted, denounced the Supreme Court's decision in a fiery speech to the nation from the Roosevelt Room of the White House. Take a listen. We cannot let this decision be the last word. On infinite, we cannot let this decision be the last word. While the court can render a decision, it cannot change what America stands for. America is an idea, an idea unique in the world, an idea of hope, an opportunity, of possibilities of giving everyone a fair shot. We should never allow the country to walk away from the dream upon which it was founded. That opportunity is for everyone, not just a few. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. That was our White House correspondent, Arlette Sines, with a very good question that forced the president to stop. And exactly, it's the key question, it's the key sound. The president went on to elaborate on that a little bit more. We want to get into that and much more with CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, and former deputy assistant attorney general for legislative affairs at DOJ, Elliot Williams, the author of the very serious newsletter on Substack, Josh Barrow, and CNN political commentator, New York Magazine columnist, and host of the You Decide podcast, Errol Lewis. Um, Josh, I want to start with you on that idea. President Biden saying this is not a normal court. Uh, mm-hmm. I just asked Secretary Johnson about that issue of, to some degree, if you read what they've done, if you look at what they've done, it follows what conservative uh, kind of legal scholars have been laying out aspirationally for decades. Mm-hmm. Now they're doing it. Why does that make it not normal? I mean, I, well, I don't, I don't, I think that the last term of the court, you know, leading up to the Dobbs decision, I think that, that you could say that that was abnormal in a lot of ways, including that they, they made this very high profile decision that went very much against public opinion. This term, the court has charted a much more moderate course. Um, you've seen a lot of, a lot of splits that are not the typical 6-3 yeah. that you would see. And then this decision, you know, it, it's, it's similar to Dobbs in that it is a significant shift in the court's jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. It is not similar to Dobbs in that this decision is in line with public opinion. It is. We can show the, the yeah. polling. Yeah. 
here because it's Pew um, in just last few months. 50 percent of Americans now disapprove of affirmative action. 33 percent approve. There is a split, though, along racial lines, I should note. Sure. But I mean, you know, even in California, the voters have twice rejected at the ballot box racial preferences Nine in college states, admissions. Actually. Right. And so, you know, I, th- I think that uh, I-, I think that Democrats need to be a little bit careful on the political side in terms of saying that this is an extension of the Dobbs decision. I think as a political matter, the court is not out on a limb here at all in the way that it was the last time around. And I think that, you know, to the extent that you have Justice Roberts and, and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett sort of toward what is now the middle of the court trying to chart a course that's going to be less politically contentious than the one that they did with Dobbs, I think this decision fits perfectly well within that. This is an area where the court can shift policy without running afoul of public opinion. Errol, um, I think that's an important point. I also you know, in reading reaction to this and speaking to people over the last, you know, less than 24 hours, the question is, well, so I'll use myself as an example. I know that one of the reasons I got into Columbia University was also the fact that my father went there, was also the fact that I'm from Minnesota, right? So the question is, can those things now be considered in a way that race can't? Or are they now on equal ground because Robert said in his opinion, students can still express how diversity has impacted their lives? That's a big question because that's a big sticking point for many people thinking, why can legacy, which largely benefits affluent white people, can that be considered now more than race? Sure. Well, I mean, that, in fact, that's in uh, Sotomayor's dissent. Right. She points right. out that, you know, um, at Harvard, for example, uh, if you're a legacy or an athletic recruit, uh, if you're the son of a faculty member or daughter of a faculty member, um, that's about 5% of the applicant pool, but they end up being 30% of the class. Uh, and, and so, you know, all of those categories plus race and the court sort of identifies race and say, well, no, you can't consider that. But all of the rest of this is, is, is all good. Uh, and it never really quite explains why. And, uh, and, and they are therefore in the majority accused by Sotomayor, just acting basically as an admissions group, you know, just sort of like setting admissions policy for the country according to their own personal whims. And, in, you know, in the, in the case of uh, Justice Thomas, his sort of personal damage that he experienced when he was a law student, um, not a sound way to make constitutional policy. I think we're going to find a lot of people using the loophole that you just alluded to, sort of saying, OK, we're not going to take race into account, but we're going to ask you to write an essay about any uh, uh, adversity you might have experienced in your life because of race or, or, or ethnicity. And the admissions officers will figure it out and the students will figure it out. And uh, the, the push toward diversity that is basically inevitable, despite the court's ruling, I think is going to remain a, a part of how institutions that are creating future leaders are going to really select those leaders. Well, I think institutions have incentive to try and create that because I think they want diverse student bodies. I think students want diverse student bodies as well. From a federal level, from a, I mean, you worked at DOJ. Yeah. What can they do? The President Biden's saying, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, um, you know, listing a couple things that kind of track with, I think, what we saw in the, the Cal system to some degree. Is there anything extent, the federal government? To some extent, look, the president can always enter executive orders on virtually any subject directing the federal government to take actions or strive to diversify or, or strive to promote diversity in its efforts. The problem with executive actions is sort of twofold. One, they can be undone with the stroke of a pen by a future president. So there's sort of a temporary Band-Aid on a problem that, that a president's identifying. But two, more importantly, they invite more litigation. I can assure you that the moment Joe Biden puts in place any sort of executive order on any of this, all the interest groups that have been behind legislation like this uh, 
you know, and other litigants will certainly challenge them in court. Yeah, they're, they're not reluctant. Not reluctant. <laughs> Which is, to some degree, why they built yeah. to this point. Uh, you're going to speak to the Education Secretary, right. Miguel Cardona, later in the show, and that's a very key thing, is what, will the, what, what can, what will the administration do now? Because I feel like we've gone through this cycle with the Supreme Court repeatedly, where the administration is furious after a ruling and then comes out and says, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then six to eight months later, you have a couple of executive actions, not even executive orders. And, and it's just the reality. There is not a lot that they can do, but they feel like they have to say they can do stuff. And then advocates are frustrated. And I feel like we're going to go through that process yeah. again to some degree. But we'll ask the Secretary of Education shortly. Uh, stay with us, everyone. Also, this news, a top Trump campaign aide meeting numerous times with investigators as part of the special counsel's classified documents probe. Details on the top secret document the former president allegedly showed her. And right now, luggage is piling up at the baggage claim at Dulles International Airport. I'm not laughing at that, just the, the absurdity image. of the last several weeks on this front. Millions of Americans are set to head out today for the holiday weekend. The record-breaking numbers expected this year ahead. Well, there are new developments this morning on multiple fronts when it comes to Donald Trump's legal troubles. First, the classified documents case. Multiple sources are now telling CNN the Florida grand jury that indicted Trump just three weeks ago. It's actually still in the process of er, investigations. What they're looking into, that's actually unclear. But we do know they are continuing to question witnesses. One of the people they're talking to, a very significant top Trump aide, Susie Wiles. Now, according to a source familiar with the matter, Trump allegedly showed Wiles a classified map of a military site at his Bedminster Golf Club in 2021. Meantime, in the 2020 election probe, a former Trump 2020 campaign official, Mike Roman, is, we've learned, cooperating with the special counsel in the inquiry of efforts to overturn that election. Our experts are back with us. Let me start with you, Elliot. Uh, And let's start where we ended there on uh, Mike Roman and the fact that he's cooperating with the special counsel, because many have pointed to this other investigation by Jack Smith as harder for him to successfully prosecute than the Mar-a-Lago documents case. How does someone like Mike Roman play into that? um, Other people, including me as well, it is a harder case by any stretch of the imagination. Look at the documents case. It's really just a matter of proving, number one, that someone knew they had documents in their house, that the documents themselves were of a sensitive nature, and then separately that he tried to obstruct the investigation into it. It's sort of very straightforward. When you start getting into overturning elections and candidates for office, giving speeches that step up to the line and raising, but it's just more legally complex. What someone like Mike Roman can do is bring you inside the campaign and the efforts and conversations had either between Trump and Romans, Trump and other people, because he can testify to that, um, and maybe even, you know, Romans himself. Now, the agreement that he's uh, speaking under, it's called a proffer agreement, right. where this they're is, agreeing not to... Key. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could be. It could be. But again, it's key in a matter that could actually be quite challenging. No, I mean key legally. that he got that agreement, a oh, proffer oh, agreement. Me, yeah. yeah, so just re- real quick, a proffer agreement is literally called a queen for the day, day. A- agreement in which you uh, prosecutors informally agree to sort of give you a benefit if everything you say to them off the record, in effect, is truthful and honest and it can lead to either the implication of somebody else to provide more evidence in the case. So he got... You know, it, it's it's sort of a you're trusting prosecutors to give you something good, but they are trusting you to actually tell them the truth. It, when we're going to say the thing where like the three lawyers all get together and say "Queen for a day" at the same, can you, like flag it for me so I don't oh, feel right. super left out? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
There is a line of thinking, Josh, that while, to Elliot's point, the documents case is the, I want to say easier, it is the more likely case to be successful at from a prosecutor's perspective, figuring out a way to bring charges or hold somebody responsible for, I don't know, overturning an election or attempting to do so is critically important for the long term. Well, it's, it's the more serious wrongdoing in some abstract sense. The question is whether it's more serious legal wrongdoing. I mean, the, there is a political remedy, which is impeachment. And indeed, the former sure. president was already impeached for, for conduct closely related to what they're looking at with regard to, to the post-election activities. I think, you know, in, ter in terms of whether there can be an indictment there, there's a few different angles that prosecutors may be looking at. One has to do with the riots and the events that actually occurred on January 6th. Another has to do with events prior to that, closer to the election, where you had pressure brought on state officials and even on the vice president trying to interfere with the election results. Do you results. view these as separate well, they're not, issues? They're, they're not separate, but they're sort of different. They're different possible legal theories about exactly what crime people committed in this process. And then the third one is has to do with fundraising and the idea that some of the fundraising solicitations that were sent out in the aftermath of the election were frauds on the donors, that people were misled about what their money was going to be used for, even that they were misled about the fact that there was an election theft, that Donald Trump needed your money to his campaign in order to wage a legal fight against. And so, you know, all of those are, are, are more complicated legal matters to bring a case about. Um, one, the, one weird thing about them looking at that fundraising matter is that that, again, sort of like the documents case, moves off the really core wrongdoing. That is not about the riot. I don't think that we would normally say that the big victims in the whole thing were people who gave money to the Donald Trump campaign. But that is another possibility for a legal avenue that they could attach to in order to have a legal remedy. A very quick point in response yeah. to that. I couldn't agree more with this idea of when we think of what's serious, what is serious and what isn't. And something might have undermined democracy or been unsavory or unbecoming of a candidate for office, just not good conduct for a president of the United States. But that doesn't mean you're going to be able to prove it as a crime in yeah. court. And that's and there's a big distinction. And I'm glad you, you touched on that, Josh. On the other uh, aspect of what we learned overnight, Susie Wiles cooperating. How? Why does that matter? I don't think she's necessarily a household name. Not a, not a household name, but uh, but somebody not, not very close to the former yeah. president. And it's, it's critically important because uh, it, it suggests that there may be further wrongdoing that the, the prosecutor is going to either uncover or allege. And so in, in the, the case where we already heard, the, you know, the... Uh, the great reporting by CNN where uh, we hear papers rustling and so forth and the former president then coming up with some excuse. Uh, you know, when I said plans, I didn't mean yeah. military plans. They were plans for some architectural project or something like that, some completely implausible scheme. Well, what we're going to find out is whether or not there were other instances where a military map or something else that a, 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 trial, a potential future trial jury could easily understand. There are some things about uh, this whole question of documents that are hard to understand. Mm -hmm. I think everybody knows that you're not supposed to show military maps mm -hmm. to people who don't have clearance for it. Just to be clear, I was wrong. She's not cooperating. She met with prosecutors. There's a big difference there. Stay with us, everyone. All right. Look at this. A Southwest plane landing with crushed nose, with a crushed nose, after an apparent bird strike. We have the details. And transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney speaking out about the Bud Light controversy and saying the company didn't reach out to her after the backlash, also talking about how lonely these months have been. For a company to hire a trans person and then not publicly stand by them is worse, in my opinion, than not hiring a trans person at all. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
take a look. These are live pictures inside of Dulles International Airport. What is set to be today the busiest day to fly. TSA officials say they're expecting agents to screen about 3 million passengers. This comes as airlines recover after several days of severe weather upended thousands of flights across the country. Pete Muntine joins us live again this morning at Reagan National. Let's hope for a smooth day. No doubt, Bobby. You know, things a lot smoother today than they were on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Just check FlightAware, about 220 cancellations. That's what we're holding steady at right now across the U.S. 150 of those are United Airlines, which has canceled more flights than any other airline since Saturday. 3,200 cancellations, 7,200 delays. Even still, though, despite all of these problems... The TSA says today will be the busiest day for air travel we have seen since the start of the pandemic. 2.82 million people expected to be screened here and at airports nationwide by the TSA. When you add it all up through the holiday, through July 5th, 17.7 million people in total. That's what the TSA is expecting. But AAA takes it one step further. When you add in air travel, add in people traveling by train and by car, 50 million people traveling 50 miles or more between now and after the holiday. That is the biggest we have seen, not since 2019, not since last year, even though it's bigger than last year, the biggest since 2005 when AAA started forecasting for the July 4th holiday travel rush. Although there's a bit of a word of caution here from TSA, they, or AAA rather, they underscore here that you just have to plan for cancellations and delays. Listen. What you need to remember when you're flying is to be prepared. Expect delays. Expect cancellations. Uh, get to the airport early. Have the app open on your phone so you're getting all those notifications from the airlines. Also, pay attention to the weather and pay and try and figure out where your plane's coming from because the weather may be great at your airport, but maybe the plane's flying in from another city and it could be delayed due to bad weather up there. United Airlines in a new statement says it will be fully recovered for this holiday travel rush, although it is saying it's grateful for all of the passengers who have been through so much lately. The FAA, though, warning thunderstorms could throw a wrench into things later today in Miami, in Denver, Atlanta, some big hubs. We could see some ground stops, Poppy, Phil. Hey, Pete, it's part of my series of... Uh Hey, pizza pilot, this thing happened to a plane. I'd like to ask Pete about it. Um, we, showed, we showed the nose of a Southwest plane that looked like a baseball bat had been taken to it. It was apparent bird strike. What can you tell us about that? You know, the good news here is that nobody was hurt, and these almost always end really without much calamity. This flight, Southwest flight from Las Vegas to Burbank, hit a bird on final approach. You can see the ray dome, the nose cone of that 737 there, crushed in a little bit. Not that big of a deal, though. There's 1,600 of these in the U.S. every year. Usually it ends okay for the plane. Doesn't end so well for the bird. They call the uh, leftovers snarge. That's oh the official term. Oh, my gosh. See, that's why my daily series, hey, <laughs> pizza pilot, something happened to a plane. I'm going to ask him about it. Is actually TV gold. When we come back from vacation, we're going to have a graphic and everything right here. Thank Thanks, you. buddy. All right, well, also this morning, trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney speaking publicly about the backlash that ensued after she featured Bud Light beers in two Instagram posts back in April. Mulvaney says she, the company never reached out to her after the onslaught of threats, bullying, and hate speech. I was waiting for the brand to reach out to me, but they never did. And 
for months now, I've been scared to leave my house. I have been ridiculed in public. I've been followed. And I have felt a loneliness that I wouldn't wish on anyone. For a company to hire a trans person and then not publicly stand by them is worse, in my opinion, than not hiring a trans person at all. Now, in a statement to the New York Times, a spokesperson for Bud Light said, quote, as we've said, we remain committed to programs and partnerships we have forged over decades with organizations across a number of communities, including those in the LGBTQ plus community. The privacy and safety of our employees and our partners is always our top priority. Now, since the backlash, Bud Light's sales plummeted. It's no longer America's t- number one selling beer. The Times reports that the stock for the parent company, Anheuser-Busch, has dropped more than 15 percent. This morning, we are expecting a huge decision, another one from the high court, on student loans. This is after the Supreme Court's monumental decision on affirmative action, what it all means for colleges and students. We're going to be joined next by Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. I also believe that while talent, creativity, and hard work are everywhere across this country, not equal opportunity, it is not everywhere across this country. We cannot let this decision be the last word. Well, after yesterday's historic Supreme Court ruling, President Biden has directed the Department of Education to analyze practices for promoting a diverse student body. So what does that actually mean? Well, we're going to ask the Education Secretary, Miguel Cardona. He joins us now. Mr. Secretary, thanks for your time. I want to start with the idea of this not being the last word. Uh, What can the Department of Education do? I know there's been months of preparation for this moment tangibly. What can the Education Department and the administration do to address any shortfalls or shortcomings you see from this ruling? And well, thank you for having me, Phil. Well, first of all, you know, to the students and families who are paying attention to this and, and realizing this could have an impact on them, uh, my message to them is we need you, we want you. Diverse learning environments make better learning environments. And then what we're doing, as the president said, this can't be the last word. Uh, within 45 days, we're going to be providing guidance to college presidents on the Supreme Court ruling. We're analyzing the 200 pages, and we're going to make sure we're clear on what it does mean and what it does not mean. Within three weeks, we're going to have uh, a national summit on educational opportunity here at the Department of Education with leaders from around the country. Uh, And we're going to be focusing on the Supreme Court decision and what it means for admissions processes. And then by September, we're going to publish a report that uh, highlights promising practices in college admissions to make sure that our college leaders have resources and tools uh, to make sure that we continue to encourage diversity on our college campuses. You know, the education department has as much visibility as as any researcher into numbers and data. Do you have an idea of what this what effect this will have on admissions in the near term? Well, right. I mean, I think, you know, looking at previous cases is is a good way to look at it. In 1996, uh, the courts struck down affirmative action in California. Um, The Number of uh, black and Latino students in top universities there plummeted 50%. Now, they've recovered, but not fully, uh, with different strategies. But we don't want that trajectory to be the trajectory of this country. Our country is built on diversity, and we recognize the importance of making sure that our college campuses reflect uh, the population of our country. And uh, we have work to do there. Do you disagree with... Chief Justice Roberts' contention that this this isn't the striking down of the precedent in its entirety. Universities can still consider this. Uh, do you think that that's not actually the case? 
Look, the Supreme Court made a decision yesterday to, to take race out of it. However, legacy status of students still could be considered. Wealth and lineage could still be considered. You know, uh, deeming, as uh, Justice Jackson said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And we have to take into account um, the fact that uh, well, while we're working really hard on it, uh, our schools are not providing uh, the, the equal access. If you look at our data across the country, black and brown students are still not um, performing at the same levels. We can't ignore that when thinking about providing opportunities. We must work on it. And that's why we're being aggressive around making sure our K-12 schools are making the grade for our students. They deserve an opportunity as well. Mr. Secretary, I understand the administration's opposition to this ruling uh, in the lead up to and since there has also been, there have also been advocates that have been pushing for this. And I want you to take a listen to one. Mm -hmm. This is a historic victory for Asian Americans because all children will no longer be treated as second class citizens in college admission. This is a victory for all Americans. And it has been the Asian American community or Asian American students that have been pushing for this, bringing these cases that ended up reaching the Supreme Court. What's your response to that? There are numbers that back up the idea uh, that was laid out there. Yeah, I respect the different perspectives that are out there, but to the, the comments that were made in that recording, students shouldn't feel like second-class citizens. Well, as the president said yesterday, unfortunately, there's still discrimination. We still have gaps in outcomes. We still have gaps in opportunity. We still have gaps in healthcare access based on race and place. We need to be honest with ourselves and say we have to address that, and we have to be intentional about strategies that level the playing field. We have students in our schools that have to work twice as hard just to get to the starting block. It's not, uh, uh, it's not level yet. And that's what this allowed us to do. And even with affirmative action, uh, the data shows that our student population in college still doesn't reflect the diversity of our country. We have a lot of work to do. This is taking us a step back, but we're undeterred. We're going to continue to move forward. Mr. I do, I do want to ask you, diversity and equity, very central to the president's decision to cancel student loan debt for up to 40 million Americans. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruling is expected on that today. The administration has been very coy about whether there is an alternative that is being considered if it gets struck down. Is there an alternative if it gets struck down? You know, we, within hours, we're going to be hearing uh, from the Supreme Court on this decision. We're confident in our case. Uh, we believe 40, over 40 million Americans are waiting uh, to, to get a little bit of respite, just like uh, many of our small businesses did and, you know, recovering from the pandemic. And this is targeted toward middle class. Ninety percent of the dollars go to people making less than $75,000. But to your question, right now, my focus is on the case that we put forward. Uh, we're prepared and it's in our DNA at the Department of Education to fight for students and to fight for borrowers who, who are right now need a little bit of support. All right. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, very busy week for you, sir. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great to hear from him. Very busy week indeed for him and all of DOE. Ahead, a police officer in Florida going beyond the call of duty, making a big difference in children's lives. We're going to show you how. I used to get in trouble at home, have bad grades, talk back to my mom. Ever since I got in here, I've been a whole different person. South Florida police officer Jonathan Nance is more than a man with a badge. He found a way to help 
to keep children healthy, active, and involved in their community, and it is working. Our Randy K shows us how he's going beyond the call of duty. Go! Let's go, let's go, let's go! In Riviera Beach, Florida, these boys are working out under the hot sun and loving it. Putting them through these drills, Riviera Beach police officer John Nance, though the kids simply call him coach. Good job, fellas. Two years ago, Nance saw a need and started the police athletic league. I recognize how high the crime rate was with juveniles. Go! So Nance, with the help of a few of his fellow officers, started taking some of the teens in the community under their wing. Now they mentor about 60 kids all year round, teaching them to stay healthy and physically fit. They play basketball, pick up trash in the neighborhood. They even impress the chief of police with their push-up skills. It's all part of building trust and keeping these kids off the streets and out of trouble. How do kids respond to you guys being police officers? At the beginning, they're a little nervous. But sooner or later, they come around, they always want to be next to you, and that's how you know you're building a trust in them. We got to have some type of understanding of where these kids come from. Sometimes they're just showing anger because dad is not in their life. Sometimes they're showing anger because something's not going right in school. So we have to sit down and talk with them and let them know that everything's going to be okay. The free program includes students from elementary school through high school like 15-year-old Jamari Harris. It just keeps us doing something, you know, positive and keeps us, you know, out of the streets. Have you bonded with the officers? Yes, I have. I love Coach Nance. That's part of my favorite person in the world. 15-year-old Andrew Santos says Coach Nance is like a father to him. He told me the program has helped him make positive changes. It changed me a lot. I used to get in trouble at home, have bad grades, talk back to my mom. Ever since I got in here, I've been a whole different person. Riviera Beach Police Chief Michael Coleman is proud of the work Nance and others in his department are doing. He gets into the kids' heart and let them know that he was once their age. And he had the same struggles they had in life. So he broke down the barriers early on by being honest and truthful and real to them. When you run a police department, you can't arrest yourself out of problems. So you have to have a program like this to eliminate future crime. <laughs> Officer Nance hopes one day these kids pay it forward. It doesn't stop with them. It has to multiply. So in 20 years, when they go in and be successful, they get back to the community and spend some time with some kids. That's when I know I have done my job. You ready, D4? Randy Kay, CNN, Riviera Beach, Florida. Well, we're expecting more big decisions from the Supreme Court today after yesterday's ruling against affirmative action. That's coming up ahead. Also, a man wanted on charges related to January 6th arrested near former President Obama's D.C. home with materials to make explosives. Details ahead. Good morning, everyone. You just heard that from the president of the United States, very unhappy with the Supreme Court's decision yesterday on affirmative action. And it was a very good question from our own Arlette Science. Was. Is the question, I think, particularly on the political side that everybody's thinking about mm -hmm. right now, but there are also very real legal and policy yeah. repercussions to come 
all That's which right. we're going to explore in the next hour. This is the law of the land now. It's a very different America for students and universities. The Supreme Court is not done yet, though, after its landmark decision to gut affirmative action in college admissions. We're going to take a look at the major rulings that are set to come down just hours from now. And the school resource officer accused of hiding during the Parkland school shooting has been found not guilty on all charges. He joins us live in just a few minutes. And CNN rides along with animal rescue teams in a desperate mission to save sea lions from toxic algae. Wait until you see that report. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Here is where we begin. It is another huge day for the country from the nation's high court. Just hours from now, we are expecting more consequential decisions from the Supreme Court that could reshape America as we know it. It comes after yesterday's ruling on affirmative action declaring race cannot be used as an express factor in college admissions. It is another sweeping change from the court's conservative supermajority. It could have a lasting impact on the diversity of campuses across the nation for decades to come. Two of the key decisions left for today are student loan relief for tens of millions of Americans, and there is the case of a web designer who refused to make websites for same-sex weddings. Just, CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider tracking all of it for us. A huge week for the court, for the country. And these opinions today also, either way they go, will have a huge impact. Yeah, exactly. And we're really uh, zoning in on the uh, the student loan debt forgiveness. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to decide this morning, unless they dismiss it on a technical ground, whether the Biden administration has this authority to grant student loan debt forgiveness to more than 40 million Americans. And it comes at a price tag of about $400 billion. So, so far, lower courts have struck down the program. So it's been on hold. But if the court here today says that the challengers maybe never had the legal right to bring this lawsuit, or if the court decides that the administration was in fact within its power to enact this debt relief program, millions of borrowers could have up to $20,000 in debt wiped away. I will warn, though, that the tone of arguments uh, really was a lot of skepticism from from the conservative justices here. They were really skeptical about whether the administration even had the ability to do something like this under the law with such a massive price tag, $400 billion. And these justices also were asking questions about fairness. Justice Gorsuch in particular asked, how is it fair to have debt wiped away now at this point for some when others have already paid? So, Poppy and Phil, that is the big case we're really looking at today just because of the impact of it. It will affect millions of Americans. Millions are in limbo right now. Um, When this program was put on hold, 26 million people had already been approved. 16 million um, were still waiting. But there'll be a lot of work to do if and when they approve this or strike it down. That's right. A longstanding payment freeze uh, put in during the pandemic is slated to end shortly as well. That has to factor in. I I do want to ask you that just before we let you go, there are also LGBTQ rights cases on the docket. What are we expecting out of those? Yeah, so this is the case of a wedding website designer in Colorado. She's refusing to make websites for same-sex couples. Her argument is that her free speech is being violated by this Colorado state law that prohibits businesses from discriminating against or refusing to serve same-sex couples. So her argument is, hey, look, I'm being forced to speak in a sense by making websites for marriages I disagree with, all because of her religion. There's a little bit of question in this case about her standing, her legal right to bring this, because 
This designer hasn't actually got her business up and running yet. She's asking for this ruling before there's really been anyone forcing her to make these websites. Um, but, you know, if they do decide in favor of this wedding website designer, the concern from the liberal justices that we saw at argument is if this court does side with her, could it open the door to other creative businesses to refuse to service uh, people they don't agree with, whether it's on the basis of religion or race or viewpoint? Um, they worry that it could really open the door for a lot more discrimination. So, guys, a lot riding on these two big cases that will come down today beginning at 10 a.m. because we are in the last day of the Supreme Court's term here. Jessica Schneider, we know you'll be tracking all of it and with us live as they come down. Thank you very much. Yes. And also with us live right now, Lindsay Peoples, editor-in-chief of The Cut, CNN Supreme Court analyst Steve Vladek, and Josh Barrow is back with us. Uh, Lindsay, I want to start with you on this. One of the things I think people have been trying to figure out is the polling on this is split to some degree. And while this, in this institution is not necessarily driven by public opinion, the divide and the polling on the issue of affirmative action, I think, has been striking to some degree, particularly in terms of how it breaks down along racial lines. People might say, well, that's what should be expected. No, this has been the way for the last four or five decades of legal precedent. Why do you think there's such division on this issue? I think there's such a vision because I think um, affirmative action has traditionally been marketed as an issue that is solely about race, when it really is about so many things um, that we know has improved as far as reducing discrimination. And I do think um, the biggest issue for me as a black woman is seeing that affirmative action has really also increased gender representation, uh, specifically beneficial to white women uh, the most. But white women have also seen such an increase in the workforce and college campuses from affirmative action, yet um, are the biggest um, critics of affirmative action. And so I think that um, running a publication that's geared towards women of color, uh, women in general, and femmes, I think it's incredibly disheartening to see really a lack of intersectional feminism, but also I think a very conditional sisterhood that I think really begs the question and challenges what white women will do with the systematic uh, privileges that they've been given through racism. A fantastic publication, by the way. Thank it's you. always <laughs> reading I dedicate my Thank time you. to. Steve uh, Vladek. You know, I thought your analysis on this, as, as, as always uh, fascinating on Twitter yesterday, was really blunt. I mean, you said it's an ending without an ending. For people who looked at the Roberts opinion and saw this window and said this is not saying what Clarence Thomas wanted, which is no affirmative action, you see it differently than them. There's no window? I mean, Poppy, I think the window is so small as to be practically ineffective. You know, I think there's going to be efforts by public and private schools, especially in blue states that have not already taken measures to limit these kinds of statements, to have diversity statements tacked on to applications. But, you know, anytime a school actually relies on those statements, anytime a school says our policy is to credit those statements, they're running afoul of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. And I think at the very least, Poppy, they're opening themselves up to be sued. But so Steve, how are, I, I don't running, what we saw how are they running afoul of the Chief Justice who explicitly wrote in the majority opinion, you know, this in no way prohibits people from, we have it right there, right? No, in no way prohibits people from writing about this in essays, talking about how their race has impacted their life. So what's, Poppy, what's slippery about the Chief Justice's opinion is that passage, which is such an important passage, is focused on the applicant. But when it comes to what the university is allowed to do, you know, can the admissions office sit around and say, if we see a statement that talks up the role of race, 
in upbringing, we're going <laughs> to give it extra credit in the process. That runs afoul of the rest of the chief's opinion. And so part of what's so frustrating about yesterday's decision is that it really walks right up to the line of ending affirmative action categorically, but now puts admissions officers really poppy in what's a bit of a catch-22, where they can point to the passage you quote and say there's still a little room for race in this context, but the more that they make that overt, the more that they make that categorical, the more they're running into the other parts of the opinion. This is why Steve is one of the leading constitutional minds in the country, because he sees beyond the black and white on the on the list. <laughs> no pun intended, but on the paper, literally. And, and he while sees I have beyond the words. not one eightieth of the legal intellect of Steve Vladek, it has been the issue that I've been trying to figure out, too. And Josh, I think that's the to some degree, this was very telegraphed that it was coming. If you followed kind of yeah. conservative uh, right legal scholars, who is on the court, the supermajority, this was predicted um, and, and it lined up with what the predictions were. And so my question has long been, all right, what happens next? And, and Steve makes such a fascinating point. How are admissions officers going to operate here? How do they police what this actually means? Why would universities not want diverse student bodies and try and implement this on their own? What's your sense of how this goes? Well, I mean, it's not, not only was it telegraphed coming up here, but I mean, going back decades in these Supreme Court decisions, the Supreme Court has rejected the primary rationale that advocates of affirmative action have been offering in the last week. Going all the way back to the Bakke decision, you were allowed to have affirmative action for the purpose of creating a diverse student body because that was supposed to produce educational benefits. The sort of reparative aspect aspect of affirmative action, when people talk about, you know, well, there's still racism in America and there's still unfair advantages and disadvantages. That not only was, is, not, is not an argument that the court accepted now, it's, a, it's an argument that the court has not accepted as a rationale for affirmative action for decades. And the, the jurisprudence also always had this idea that these programs were supposed to be temporary, even in Grutter, sort of floating this idea that we might do this for 25 more years. So yeah, I mean, the university should have been prepared. I think people are assuming that the universities are going to look for ways to do end runs around this decision. That certainly is is an option on the part of, of, of universities, but they don't, they don't have to do that. I think one, you know, likely for future outcome here is, you know, Republicans and Democrats both are talking about how, you know, well, well, legacy admissions are so unfair. There's no law against legacy admissions, but there could be a law against legacy admissions. I think that's something that you might actually see some bipartisan interest in in Washington, saying if you're going to have this restriction on the playing field, there's no reason that Washington can't come in and, and impose other restrictions that people think will produce a more fair admissions well, environment. Well, certainly raising so many questions this morning, why race and not legacy and these other... Well, because that's the, the law. The 14th yeah, Amendment yes. and, and the Civil Rights Act address uh, discrimination on the basis of race and, and the Civil Rights Act uh, on the basis of sex and mm -hmm. certain other things. They don't address legacy admissions, mm -hmm. but that's not a reason that you couldn't have a new law. Yeah. Uh, let, why don't I give you the, the final word on this? Because Josh is right, pointing to Justice O'Connor's majority opinion in, in Greta versus Bollinger, you know, did talk about a 25-year sunset. Um, and also the Powell decision in Bakke did talk expressly about, you know, a diverse student body being a compelling state interest. The question is also, though, Maybe it's not the legal question, but it's, it's what is happening in life, as was referred to in one of the dissents. I don't know that we have come as a country nearly as far as uh, Sandra Day O'Connor thought when she wrote that opinion. And she told that to her biographer 11 years later. Mm -hmm. That's the question is, what does this mean implemented? 
Yeah, I mean, culturally, I, I just think that it is um, delusional to think that our country is going to prioritize diversity. And we, when we've, you know, systematically been oppressing people, uh, we've been fighting for our rights for, you know, voting, to use our voice, uh, to be able to vote, to be able to buy property, all of these things. And so I think that inclusivity is something that can't be passive and people have to be active in their allyship, allyship towards this um, or we're not going to see any change. Um, there's a lot more to come on this. And to, to your point, follow Steve Vladek on Twitter. I, I learn a ton. I don't learn a lot from Twitter these days, but I learn a lot from Steve in terms of when these cases come out and what his reads on them are. Um, Josh, thanks. Lindsay, thanks very much for your perspective. Also, this story this morning, Washington Metro Police have arrested a man with numerous firearms and materials to make an explosive. The arrest was made just blocks from former President Obama's home. Officials say Taylor Taranto made threats on an Internet live stream and had an arrest warrant related to the January 6th insurrection. Joining us now is our very own John Miller. Scary. So it's uh, interesting also how it came together, uh, as well as being very concerning. So Taylor Toronto, known quantity in the January 6th crowd, a guy who was inside the Capitol, who, um, who was uh, on video uh, at the spot where Ashley Babbitt was shot by Capitol Police, where they were breaking through the window, has been on the radar of the FBI Joint Terrorist Task Force kind of January 6th probe. What happened yesterday was... The Capitol Police, seeing some of his live streams showing that he was in Washington um, and statements that they interpreted as being threatened, threatening to members of Congress, put out a bolo. Be on the lookout for this individual if he's seen um, the U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division, which is on patrol in the neighborhood where President Obama, former President Obama lives, spots him. They do the stop. His van, which he seems to be living out of, is parked a short distance away. They look in the van, see very concerning things, call the bomb squads. What they have is materials to make Molotov cocktails, bottles, rags, fuel, um, numerous handguns, one rifle. So they're really trying to assess um, in the FBI investigation into him, where are they? What was his presence there? What was the purpose of the weapons? He's all the way from Seattle living out of this van in Washington and making these alleged threats. So this is a case that's still coming together. Mm. We expect to learn more in his initial appearance in court later today. Um, but there's a lot of bad signs there. Can you give a little more context on Toronto? I mean, I think he was, obviously he has a profile, obviously law enforcement very aware of him. What do we know about kind of his background? 37 years old, um, was in the Capitol on January 6th, um, has appeared on a number of videos, but he's a blogger, he's a communicator, he's interviewed on shows about free the January 6th uh, subjects. Um, interestingly, he was sued by the wife of a Capitol Police officer who died after January 6th. He was injured that day, but committed suicide, and they attributed that to PTSD. Her case was dismissed because she couldn't connect his specific actions uh, to her husband's death. But he's been a voice and a figure in the January 6th um, uh, movement. The, the issue th about it yesterday is what, what are the weapons for? Why is he there? And, you know, why the makings of Molotov cocktails? Yeah, so many questions. John, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, the former school resource officer accused of failing to confront the mass shooter at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, acquitted on all counts. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Verdict. That former officer, Scott Peterson, joins us live with his attorney. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Verdict. Count two. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. It was former school resource officer Scott Peterson breaking down in tears after being found not guilty on all charges for failing to confront the gunman who killed 17 people during the February 2018 massacre at Marjorie Stone Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Peterson faced seven counts of felony child neglect, three counts of culpable negligence, and one count of perjury. Prosecutors accused Peterson of ignoring his training and doing nothing, instead taking cover for more than 45 minutes outside the school before the killer was apprehended. Peterson's attorney argued the then-deputy didn't enter the building because he couldn't tell where the shots were coming from. Again, he was found not guilty on all charges. Joining us now is Scott Peterson and his attorney, Mark Eiglarsh. Scott, thank you for joining us. I I want you to listen to what some of the parents said. You know, we saw your emotional reaction, understandable emotional reaction, after uh, the not guilty verdict was read. This was what some of the parents of those students said uh, when they heard what happened yesterday. It's another failure, like the system did it again and again and again. Um, I'm watching this individual crying like a victim. Um, He signed for a job that he did not deliver. Shame on him for that too. Deeply, deeply disappointed. All the evidence, all the video, it just shows that he valued his life over the life of the people on the third floor. Deputy Peterson and the lawyer's family as they cheer this victory. For our families, we still feel he should be haunted every day by his failure to act. I know that he caused, he contributed, I should say, to the deaths of my daughter, Gina, her schoolmates, and their teachers. My Scott did what Scott Peterson should have done. My Scott protected his students. He saved 31 students, okay, from the shooter. That's what Scott Peterson should have done. I'm interested... Scott, what's your response? You've said you would like to meet with the families if they would like to meet with you, you'd like to talk to them. What's your response when you hear uh, those emotional responses? My heart goes out to to all the families uh, regarding that massacre on February 14th, 2018. Do you understand why perhaps, again, you, you made clear, you said you got your life back, your emotional response uh, when the not guilty uh, was read. Do you understand why the parents may have a different perspective on this? I can understand their hurt. They lost their kids on that terrible day. But I, 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 really, don't, I really don't know what I would, you know, say. I, I, did, I did everything the best I could. You have expressed a desire to to meet with some of those parents, to talk to them. Um, You just said you don't know what you would say. Do you mean to the audience or to them in private? Is is there something you'd like them to know? No, to to them I know exactly what I would say. I'm I'm saying here to this audience. But to them I know exactly what I'd say. Of course we respect the 
that you would want to do that in private. I am interested, you know, broadly in, you know, you had 17 people murdered that day and we saw Florida enact real changes in gun laws after Parkland, including red flag laws. As someone who was who was there, do you believe that there are more things that could be done to keep our kids safe in their schools? I think I'd defer that to Mark to answer that. Yeah, I think we're missing the point. This is a man who was acquitted by a jury who found that he was not guilty of the meritless, baseless charges brought to him that he, along with numerous other deputies, couldn't tell where the shots were coming from and did everything he could by ordering a code red and by trying to save students on campus. The issue is the system worked. The system protected an officer who dedicated his life for 32 years to law enforcement and who had baseless, meritless charges brought against him. He just went through a living hell for four years and was finally acquitted. So yeah, listen, my heart goes out to the families. I'm so sorry they went through all that, but the monster who did it is serving a life sentence. Mm -hmm. This man did everything he could and in no way could have stopped what took place. I think my my question was about, I hear you, Mark. Um, My question was about having been there on such a tragic day. He has a unique perspective. Scott, you have a unique perspective on what it takes to keep these students, students across the country safe. I think that's just what I was trying to get at. Okay, how about having radios that work? They gave my client a radio that was 25 to 30 years old and none of the cops on campus could communicate. How about fixing the radio system so that when information comes in to 911, it doesn't go to Coral Springs Police Department, it goes to BSO. Mm -hmm. So first responders like my client could hear in real time precisely where the shooter's located. These aren't his issues. His supervisors set him up for failure and then held a press conference and Sheriff Israel threw him under the bus for his own political gain. That caused parents to be outraged naturally. They lost their kids and they thought erroneously he could have prevented it. And then charges were brought after the governor insisted that investigation commence. So this was all political. And coincidentally, I couldn't even argue that in the trial. Nevertheless, the jurors saw through it and saw that this man, a dedicated award-winning officer who gave his heart and soul to everyone on that campus, was not guilty of anything. Uh, Mark, given your forceful response to this, and I mean, you guys agreed to do this, I think, I think it's entirely fair for us to show what the parents are saying. And I, I understand your perspective here. I, I guess my question would be, given what the parents are saying, given the fact uh, that this portion is done, what, is, what are your expectations of civil litigation going forward? All options are on the table. We're considering everything. But the most important thing is for both my client and I finally to move forward after four years of fighting charges that could have resulted in a life sentence. This man could have gone to prison for life yesterday if prosecutors had had their way. It shouldn't come down to him lucking out and connecting with a lawyer who from his core believed in his client's innocence and fought against a team of prosecutors who tried to put him in prison for the rest of his life. That should never happen to any officer anywhere. 
My passion is justified because no one should ever have to go through what he went through. All right, Scott Peterson and Mark Eiglers. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. We do have new CNN exclusive reporting about sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy, what was uncovered, and why it took so long to come to light. That's ahead. Now to a CNN exclusive, the Coast Guard has been hiding a damning investigation and report about sexual assault at its academy for years until CNN recently uncovered it. Our chief investigative correspondent, Pamela Brown, joins us. Pamela, good morning. What can you tell us? Good morning. Well, it's called Operation Fouled Anchor, and it was an investigation into sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy, which uncovered a history of substantiated rapes and assaults that were ignored or even covered up by high-ranking officials. You've never heard of it because no one ever saw that report. It was buried, even though it was completed a few years ago. The findings were kept secret by Coast Guard's top leadership. And get this, after all this time, the Coast Guard finally came forward and reported it to Congress this month, only after CNN's investigative team asked about it. The report found dozens of cases of alleged sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy, even though they only looked at a limited time frame from 1988 to 2006. And here's some more details about what's an Operation Fouled Anchor. It said that, quote, there was a disturbing pattern of not treating reported sexual assaults as criminal matters, even in cases where there was overwhelming evidence. Leadership was more concerned at that time about Coast Guard Academy reputation than about the victims of crimes who were members of our service, and that the suspects and sometimes the victims were simply disenrolled from the academy with no investigation at all. Now, if there were punishments, some were laughable, minor things like extra homework or lowered class standings. Those were the quote-unquote punishments. Even those pushed out of the academy were sometimes able to serve in the U.S. military. Now, Pamela, though the report talks about the past, you talked to a woman who was a more recent cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, right? That's right. Um, I I just sat down with her this week. Um, This is a young woman who just got her diploma last year. She says the culture has not changed. She was sexually assaulted as a cadet multiple times, and she asked us to hide her identity. Take a listen to what she had to say. I was sexually assaulted three times. The first by a superior, the second time by somebody I considered a dear friend, and the third by an international cadet. It was completely toxic and devastating to my sense of self and um, left lifelong damages to my physical, mental health. The Coast Guard Academy employs, reinforces, and cultivates a a system that that thrives on the trauma and pain of women and minorities. It's it's designed for their failure. And the Coast Guard investigated one of her assaults, but said that there wasn't enough evidence. Wow. Pamela, I just wonder if the Coast Guard is saying anything about the larger investigation now, Operation Fouled Anchor. So, Poppy, um, CNN reached out repeatedly to the Coast Guard for answers to detailed questions. But instead, the Coast Guard reached out to Congress this week, this week before the holiday, 
to fess up about the report that it has been hiding for five years. And the Coast Guard sent CNN a statement saying, in part, they're dedicated to addressing the needs of survivors and holding offenders accountable. We're going to have much more about this throughout the day and on CNN.com in a story by my incredible investigative colleagues working on this reporting for months. Melanie Hicken, Blake Ellis and Audrey Ash. Back yeah, to you. It really is remarkably important reporting. Yeah, Thank you. Exactly. Pamela. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. The Supreme Court gutting affirmative action, a move that will transform college admissions across the country. We're going to speak to students. Right. What does this mean for them? What's the impact in real life ahead? Harvard University seeking to reassure students today after the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action, declaring race cannot be an express factor in college admissions. In a letter to their students, Harvard administrators write, quote, in the weeks and months ahead, drawing on the talent and expertise of our Harvard community, we'll determine how to preserve, consistent with the court's new precedent, our essential values. The key question, though, is how will this actually play out on college campuses for students, right, for high school kids waiting to get into college? We're going to talk to a few key people about this. Andrew Brennan, a 2019 UNC Chapel Hill grad who is heading to Columbia Law School this fall, perhaps the last affirmative action class. He's the son of two attorneys, and he told CNN last year that his parents taught him how affirmative action helped black families prosper. Brennan also testified in a lower court hearing on this case and then attended the Supreme Court's oral arguments. Kyra Abrams graduated from UC Berkeley last spring, the first in her family to finish college. In California, race-conscious admissions have been banned at public universities for more than two decades. She told The New York Times about what she faced at Berkeley. Quote, black students, she said, refer to themselves as the 1.9 percent, their share of the student population, down from the low double digits years just a year before the ban. You feel isolated, she said. Also with us, Janice Jackson, the former Chicago Public Schools chief. She is now the CEO of Hope Chicago, which pays for college for thousands of Chicago area students and their parents. In its first year, Hope Chicago says college enrollment for students at the schools they work with jumped 30 percent. Here's what she told 60 Minutes. We have to catch up. That's the bottom line. And I may be biased, but I do believe education is the single most powerful way to disrupt generational poverty. It is. Former President Obama yesterday highlighted Hope Chicago's work in his statement after the Supreme Court ruling. Andrew, Kyra and Janice all join me now. Good morning and thank you all. Andrew, let me begin with you. What is um, striking and I think important is the way that you discuss affirmative action, the role it has had in your life. And, and you don't shy away from the fact that you have even said, you know, I may not have been at Columbia Law School, but for this. But here is why it is so important. Can you speak to the decision, Andrew? Absolutely. You know, yesterday's decision was disappointing. Um, when I first came to UNC Chapel Hill, uh, I was one of 11 percent of the campus that was African-American in a state uh, of North Carolina that was 22 percent African-American. Uh, I had grown up in the South my entire life, but it wasn't until being on campus at UNC that I had witnessed my first Confederate rally. And so it was in that context that this lawsuit was brought, and it's why uh, so many students of color like myself sought to intervene in the lawsuit uh, so that our perspectives could be included in the record. Kyrie, can you yeah. speak to your experience at, at Berkeley? I read a little bit of what you told the New York Times about, you know, being called the 1.9%, but also people there questioning if you should be there or if it's just, would, was just because of your race, which is 
you know, not based on fact, given race conscious admissions have been banned there for more than two decades. Do you support what the court did here? No, absolutely not. Um, it's already very difficult at UC Berkeley and all public schools in California who were, have been struggling to get the numbers back up since 1996. They have to do they have to circumvent um, the laws in a way. Like, students have to put in so much work. Students are so overworked at UC Berkeley, especially black students, because they have to put in extra recruitment efforts due to Prop 209 um, being passed, banning affirmative action in 1996. And so it's it was very difficult to even get black students to attend. Mm -hmm. And also, my first year, UC Berkeley was rated the lowest um, UC for black mm -hmm. students as in like, it was the worst um, through a USC study. Wow. So that being my first year um, was a real shock to me and students were upset and we had to put in even more work to make students even want to come to UC Berkeley. So it was very difficult Just and I do not agree with the ruling at all. Justice Thomas, um wrote in his concurring opinion, while I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles, so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that all men are created equal, are equal citizens and must be treated equally before the law. Kyra, he sees this as finally treating black students equally. And you say... The Declaration of Independence was written when black people were slaves. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily take something that was written when, you know, black people weren't even allowed to have education. And that goes to show how hard black people have had it mm -hmm. versus others, um, especially in this country, especially African-Americans in this country who have a legacy of being beaten down and having to like pull ourselves up by the bootstraps for lack of better words to even get to where we are. Yeah. And so we do need things like affirmative action to level the playing field for us. And the whole like, case is centered around the 14th Amendment and, and, and what equal protection actually is. Janice, to you, the reason I really, um, I'm so glad you yeah. could join us this morning um, is because you work with the kids. The work that you do at Hope Chicago, I should note, obviously something started by a friend of mine, Pete Cadens. Um, but what you do there is send children to college for free and, and one of their parents. Yeah. So I'm interested in what this will mean for them one year, two years, 10 years down the line. Yeah. Well, let, make no mistake, the decision was definitely a setback for students, in particular black students and Latino students across this country. Um, at Hope Chicago, we introduced this as a solution to make sure and remove more barriers for black and Latino students and first generation students to have access to college. This decision closes yet another door. And as uh, Kyra pointed out in her remarks, you're going to see more and more students having to circumvent different processes, which again is yet another barrier towards the promise of education. Um, I think educators and decision makers across this country are upset by this, but my message to folks is that we really have to get out here and think creatively about how we don't lose the ground that we've made over the past generation. But make no mistake, there are no bright do spots you, in what happened well, yesterday. Do you, well, do you think you can do that? Does this ruling make 
your job harder getting those kids into the college Absolutely. colleges, even with the window Abs that Justice Roberts pointed out, saying you can still write about it in essays, et cetera. You just can't check yeah. a box. Yeah. Let, let, let's take a step back. Black and Latino first generation students have always had to be twice as good and do much more to have equal access. That has been a vestige of our public education and higher ed system for centuries in this country. Um, when you continue to put laws in place that make it more difficult, not only is it more difficult for the students and the families, it's much more difficult for the colleges who have made tremendous strides in trying to diversify their student body. This just makes it harder. And you only have to look at California and look at what Prop 209 did. You see a complete um, reduction in black students, in particular, attending some of the most elite universities in California. We should expect to see the same thing across this country, but I would also challenge people to lift up their voices and do things like what we're doing at Hope Chicago to remove more barriers. Andrew, final question to you. Um, your family, I should just, a little background for folks here. Your family's upper middle class. Your father was dean at the University of Kentucky Law School. I just bring that up because I think it relates to what Justice Roberts said during oral arguments in this case. He said, let's say his is talking about any student. Viewpoints tend to be very close with white applicants. Had a great upbringing, comfortable. His parents went to Harvard. He's a legacy. And yet under your system, when he checks African-American, he gets a tip. That was the, the question that Justice Roberts raised. What is your reaction to that? Well, I think, first uh, of all, putting aside the fact... I'm sorry? Go ahead, Andrew. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, okay. Putting aside the fact that uh, Justice Roberts' comments ignore the facts in this case and how UNC actually uses race in the admissions process, you know, I think it speaks to a fundamental fallacy here. You cannot have a race-blind admissions process uh, when our country itself isn't race-blind. So the answer to your question is yes. Even the sons of law school deans experience racial harassment, racial hostility, and racial prejudice on a regular basis. The subject of my college admissions essay was about how all throughout high school I was called an Oreo. That meant that I was black on the outside and white on the inside because I got good grades in school. That's the kind of uh, experiences that black students need to write about. And as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, uh, because of today's decision, the police can consider my race when assessing my suspicion of a crime, but a college admissions officer can't consider my race when assessing my potential to contribute to a college campus. That is the tortured logic wow. at play here. And everyone is hurt by that, not just black and brown students. Everyone benefits from diverse campuses, and they're under threat because of this decision. Andrew, Kyra, Janice, thank you for your time. I hope you'll come back. Let's see how this actually plays out over the next few years. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bill. Right, a bloom of toxic algae is harming marine life along the California coast. CNN went along with rescuers who say this is unlike anything they've ever seen before. Sorry. <clears throat> I just know from working in the colonies how incredible the animals are, so um, they deserve respect. Well, this morning, officials say they've received more than a thousand calls in recent weeks about hundreds of dead or sick sea mammals washing up on California shores. Experts believe the cause is a giant growing toxic algae bloom that's poisonous for seabirds and fish and can travel up the food chain to dolphins, sea lions, and even humans. 
CNN's David Culver went to the beach with animal rescuers. 8 a.m. and they're already playing catch-up. These marine wildlife rescuers inundated with calls for help. Two animals, one's sicker than the other one. One's way up the beach and there's one by the tide line. The beach itself over here has been narrowing, so it's a little dicey sometimes. We go along with wildlife rescuer Adam Fox. He's been saving sea lions for nearly 15 years. What he's seen on Southern California beaches since late May is unprecedented. Is there anyone there that potentially assist us? There's a lifeguard there. Okay, great, thank you. As we get closer, we spot one of the sea lions. Looks like he's having a seizure right now. What we'll do is just be very gentle with her. Get those flipper pits in. And I'm gonna flip her to you. Three, two, one. They obviously were able to rescue one, but you can see behind us another one that didn't survive. I mean, it's just heartbreaking seeing this. The cause sits just off the coast in the Pacific Ocean. Out here, scientists say a massive bloom of toxic algae is growing, stretching some 200 miles from Santa Barbara south to San Diego and forecasted to get worse. The ocean temperature is projected to be its warmest over the next five years. That's the recipe for these blooms to become more intense. Smaller sea creatures feed on the toxic algae. They, in turn, are eaten by larger mammals, like dolphins and sea lions. These algal blooms have happened before, but this year scientists warn that the concentration of toxins in this bloom, forecasted in red, is leading to potentially record deaths of marine life. Experts liken this to waves of a tsunami washing over local beaches with even more sea lions and dolphins showing symptoms. The dolphins lifeless once they hit the shore. The sea lions beached and suffering from seizures and paralysis. People who have called in because they've seen animals out on the beach and they've described it as the ocean sort of coughing up death. I'm here to report a sea lion seems to be foaming at the mouth and looks like it's in some distress. This one's uh, really, really on his way out. His eyes are closed and it just shallow breathing. That's so sad. All of it weighs on rescuers like Adam. Sorry. <clears throat> I just know from working in the colonies how incredible the animals are. So um, they deserve respect. Respect this team shows through care, unloading the seizing sea lion for Dr. Lauren Palmer to begin treatment. Dr. Palmer's not had a day off in months. Her desperate patients keeping her busy. Big breath, she seems a little bit more comfortable. There's no guaranteed cure. The meds and fluids can help flush the toxins out, but if the toxins take hold, the brain damage is irreversible, causing erratic and aggressive behavior, including towards people who get too close. Off to the side, we notice this pup fighting for survival. Desperate for milk and nurturing that only his mother can provide. She's sedated as her body fights off the toxins. She might deliver a healthy life pup, but doesn't nurse, doesn't lactate, doesn't pay attention to it. The Marine Mammal Care Center had 40 sea lions this time last year. Today, they're caring for three times that number. 
We ordered fish uh, for the whole year based upon what we would normally see and have gone through the entire 150,000 pounds uh, this month. So overwhelming, they've had to accommodate overflow in the parking lot. And that's put strains on our personnel. Uh, we have one veterinarian. Is it only going to get worse? They used to call it an unusual mortality event. And unfortunately, they're frequent enough now that they no longer call them unusual because they're not. Relentless and expected to intensify. Possibly devastating generations of sea lions, like this pup, just seven days old. He may not make it. The hundreds of sea lions that are saved, unable to return home until the toxic algae clears. Wow, David. Thank you for joining us. I, so many people are obviously going to go to the beach this weekend, right? Witness some of this. What Can they do yeah. anything? It's really, first of all, Poppy, tough to see this uh, up close and personal. I didn't expect it to be that difficult to, to watch as you see one of these animals just in the middle of a seizure. As far as what the beaches are going to be like this weekend, you're right. I mean, you've got the 4th of July, the holiday, they're going to be packed. You're going to have fireworks. Those are all things that are going to add to the struggle and the stress on these animals of course, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway is just to keep your space. I mean, that's the thing. You, you hear so many reports of people actually going up, getting close to these animals and, and really irritating them further. That's a big issue. And then uh, their, their strain on resources and donations is something that they're, they're heavily relied on to continue this rescue effort. But it's overwhelming. Yeah. yeah uh, overwhelming. Heartbreaking as well. David Culver, a great piece. Yeah. Great reporting. Thanks as so much. Always. Thank you. Too often, the people working hard to help improve the lives of others don't get the recognition that they appreciate that they or appreciation they deserve. Here's where CNN Heroes comes in. Since 2007, CNN Heroes has honored hundreds of everyday people making the world a better place. We shine a light on their causes and help them raise funds for their life-changing work, all while inspiring people with their incredible stories. But the first step in the CNN Heroes journey is a nomination, and that's where you come in. It only takes a few minutes and you can do it right now at cnnheroes.com. Just think about what makes this person special and tell us about them in a paragraph or two. We want to know about their impact and what makes their work unique. You don't need to know your nominee personally. They could just be someone you admire from afar. And they could be from almost anywhere in the world. This is your opportunity to help that amazing person you know reach more people and change more lives and maybe even become the next CNN Hero of the Year. One of my favorite parts of CNN. CNN no Heroes. No question about it. Big news day ahead. Watch it all. CNN News Central starts after this break. Have a great weekend, folks. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.